Uh, if you have uh, a Bible, go ahead and take it and turn to the first book of the Bible, Genesis chapter 12. Genesis chapter 12. Before we read God's inspired word, I'd like to read to you from the Jesus Storybook Bible. Um, this is a favorite around our house. The kids love it. It's a, a retelling. It's not inspired as, as what we will read in a moment. But I, I want to set the stage a little bit, not only for this morning's message, but also for this new series that we're going to start through the life of Abraham. So this is the, the first um, story in the Jesus Storybook Bible that sort of sets the stage for the whole book. It's called The Story and the Song. It begins with this short paraphrase from Psalm 19, 1 through 2, and then goes on. But listen to this uh, together with me. It's, it's a children's Bible, obviously, but it's, uh, it's always very poignant to me at the same time. The heavens are singing about how great God is, and the skies are shouting it out. See what God has made. Day after day, night after night, they are speaking to us. God wrote, I love you. He wrote it in the sky and on the earth and under the sea. He wrote his message everywhere because God created everything in his world to reflect him like a mirror, to show us what he is like, to help us know him, to make our hearts sing. The way a kitten chases her tail, the way red poppies grow wild, the way a dolphin swims. And God put it in the words, too. He wrote it in a book called the Bible. Now, some people think that the Bible is a book of rules telling you what you should and shouldn't do. The Bible certainly does have some rules in it. They show you how life works best. But the Bible isn't mainly about you and what you should be doing. It's about God and what he has done. Other people think the Bible is a book of heroes showing you people you should copy the Bible does have some heroes in it, but as you'll soon find out, most of the people in the Bible aren't heroes at all. They make some big mistakes, sometimes on purpose. They get afraid and run. At times, they are downright mean. No, the Bible isn't a book of rules or a book of heroes. The Bible is, most of all, a story. It's an adventure story about a young hero who comes from a far country to win back his lost treasure. It's a love story about a brave prince who leaves his palace, his throne, everything, to rescue the one he loves. It's like the most wonderful of fairy tales that has come true in real life. You see, the best thing about this story is, it's true. There are lots of stories in the Bible, but all the stories are telling one big story. The story of how God loves his children and comes to rescue them. It takes the whole Bible to tell this story. And at the center of the story, there is a baby. Every story in the Bible whispers his name. He's like the missing piece in a puzzle, the piece that makes all the other pieces fit together, and suddenly you can see a beautiful picture. And this is no ordinary baby. This is the child upon whom everything would depend. This is the child who would one day, but wait, our story starts where all good stories start, right at the very beginning. The children's book makes me cry. <laughs> That's how Sally Lloyd-Jones begins her Jesus storybook Bible, and it reminds us that Scripture is, is one large story. It may be too simple to just say that the Bible is, at its core, a, a story. 
I think at best it's probably good to say that the Bible is a revelation of God himself. It's a revelation of this, this God who has interacted with his creation, how he has interacted with his creation. But, but it's also a story. It's, it's divided into 66 books, but it is one large story. It's a single book, a single story, a single revelation from God of God. This is how we know who God is. And there's such a large portion of the Bible that is narrative, that is story, that it would seem that God likes to reveal himself through the, the telling of stories, that, that he tells us how he has interacted with people, and that reveals who he is. And so we should work hard at understanding how to read the stories of the Bible and understand what they're telling us about who God is. Because while they're stories about people, and we can learn from these men and women, God is the central character in the larger story and in every individual story. And the stories are going to relate historical facts, things that we could look up. But it's not so much about history as it is about who God is and how he has ordered history and, and led history. And even though, though it's, it's the Old Testament, if Jesus is the ultimate revelation of who God is, and if the Bible is a picture of who God is, then Jesus is all over the Bible, even in the Old Testament. And as Sally Lloyd-Jones says, every story whispers his name. And so this morning we're going to begin this journey through the narrative of the life of Abraham. And the task before us is not simply to look at the, the narrative of the life of Abraham and to read the stories, though, though we have to at least start there. And we should read these stories as some of the grandest and truest stories that have ever been written. We should read them as narratives, as true stories. But we also need to seek to understand why they are included in the Bible. Why are they a revelation from God? What do they teach us about who God is? We can't simply look at who Abraham was or learn the details of the history of the Israelites, but we have to ask, who is God revealed to be in this story? And, and how is that supposed to impact my life? Now, <clears throat> navigating biblical narrative is, is not easy. Uh, I can pick up a book of stories and read it to my kids, just any book of stories, and usually they'll understand it, and I'll understand it, hopefully, if they understand it. And if there's a moral to the story, usually we can pick it out and say, well, why was this story written? It was written to teach us this specific lesson. There are times Andrea will get a book from the library, and it's a, it's a collection of stories, say, from, from Africa or from China or from Russia. And it's a traditional folktale of sorts. But there, there are things that I don't fully understand because I'm not from those countries. There are nuances that I, I just don't get. And so even in a children's book, sometimes there will be footnotes and, or there will be an introduction explaining what the purpose of the story is. Because in order to understand it, there are concepts that, that we have to grasp. And it's, it's the same way with biblical narratives. These are stories from, they're from a completely different world, a, a different part of the world and a completely different time period, especially with Old Testament narrative. And at times they may be confusing. At times we may want to impose our worldview and the way that we understand things upon these stories, and that's to distort the story and what it, what it really means. We lean towards wanting to just moralize the stories. We make them lessons about how we should be more like Abraham, or we should be more like David, or we should be more like Joseph. And, and we can see that in there, but that's not really the, the purpose of the stories usually. We want to see Jesus in the stories, but we also don't want to take the Old Testament and impose it 
the New Testament impose it on the Old Testament and make it say something that it's not really saying. And so it it's difficult. Our family recently read through the book of Judges. Um, we were faced with some tough questions. How do you deal with Samson, uh, this man who was blessed by God, and yet his life was just a train wreck, it seemed like. And and I want you to try this sometime. Try explaining to a two-, three-, and six-year-old the narrative about Jephthah making a vow and then, from all appearances in the text, killing his daughter. And then read the last few chapters of the book of Judges and try to make sense of it yourself, let alone explain it to someone else. The Bible can be hard to understand. Biblical narrative, again, it's from this completely different world. It's not easy to understand, but saying all of that, there is truth. We can step into the story of Abraham that's found within the book of Genesis, and we can be confident that Scripture is clear, that God desires for us to know why he wrote it. He desires for us to understand it. Hear these words as encouragement from Deuteronomy 30, verses 11 through 14. It says, For this commandment that I command you today is not too hard for you, neither is it far off. It's not in heaven that you should say, Who will ascend to heaven for us and bring it to us, that we may hear it and do it? Neither is it beyond the sea that you should say, Who will go over the sea for us and bring it to us, that we may hear it and do it? But the word is very near you. It is in your mouth and in your heart, so that you can do it. Scripture is clear, and God desires for us to understand it. Not only that, but he's given us the Holy Spirit. And Jesus says the Holy Spirit is going to lead us into all truth. The Scriptures say that all of God's word is profitable, including the Old Testament. Romans 15.4 says, For whatever was written in former days, speaking of the Old Testament, was written for our instruction that through endurance and through the encouragement of the scriptures, we might have hope. And so, this is all encouragement as we delve into Old Testament narrative that can be very hard to understand sometimes. But I just want to encourage you that as you read and study the Bible, whether we do it here on Sunday mornings, whether you do it at your breakfast table, or whether you do it before you lay your head on your pillow at night, read with confidence that it's God's word and that God wants you to understand what it means, that it's clear, and that the Holy Spirit will guide you into truth. As much as I desire to teach well and apply the passage well, I know that only the Holy Spirit can do that. Only the Holy Spirit can help us to understand these things and then apply them to our lives. So I want you to encourage you to read your Bible, read every part of it, read the book of Judges, and as you read it, say, this is God's Word. This is inspired. This is His Word to me and for me. It is true, I can understand it, and it's applicable in my life. I'm not saying it's easy, but it's there, and God wants us to understand it. So, with that confidence that God has desired us to know Him, that He's revealed Himself in Scripture, in the stories of Scripture, we're going to consider God's revelation of Himself in the narrative of the life of Abraham. We're going to go through Genesis chapter 12 through Genesis chapter 25. We'll take anywhere from, I'm going to guess, 12 to 16 weeks to do that. I'm not sure how we'll break it up completely yet because I'm still, again, trying to understand what's the best way to break this up. But it's going to be about that. We'll probably take a break in between. But I, my hope, my, my prayer is that God fills us with an expectancy, with, with a joy as we consider Abraham the, and, and as we consider 
the God of Abraham in these narratives. I hope that you come and read these beautiful stories as if you've read them for the first time with, with fresh eyes, that you would see them and you would think about Abraham as a real person, that you would think about Sarai as a, as a real individual, as people who faced real obstacles. I mean, these are stories of love, they're stories of loss, they're stories of lies and deception, they're stories of sorrow, stories of laughter. They're complete with wars between kings. There's the cataclysmic destruction of a city. Um, there are appearances of God. There's miraculous intervention. Some of it's stirring. Some of it is confusing. But it, it all reveals to us who God is, and it's all applicable. And so I hope that as we look at the narrative of the life of Abraham, that it will be exciting. What a beautiful thing. We get to read stories to understand more about who God is. So let's read together the introduction and the first part of this wonderful revelation of God through the life of Abraham. We're going to start actually in chapter 11, chapter 11, verse 27. And this morning we'll just read verses, uh, chapter 11, verse 27, we'll read through chapter 12, verse 9. It says, Now these are the generations of Terah. Terah fathered Abram, Nahor, and Haran. And Haran fathered Lot. Haran died in the presence of his father Terah in the land of his kindred, in Ur of the Chaldeans. And Abram and Nahor took wives. The name of, Ab name of Abram's wife was Sarai, and the name of Nahor's wife, Milcah, the daughter of Haran, the father of Milcah and Iscah. Now Sarai was barren. She had no child. Terah took Abram, his son, and Lot, the son of Haran, his grandson, and Sarai, his daughter-in-law, his son Abram's wife, and they went forth together from Ur of the Chaldeans to go into the land of Canaan. But when they came to Haran, they settled there. The days of Terah were 205 years, and Terah died in Haran. Now, the Lord said to Abram, Go from your country and your kindred and your father's house to the land that I will show you, and I will make you a great nation, and I will bless you. And make your name great, so that you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you, and him who dishonors you I will curse. And in you, all the families of the earth shall be blessed. So Abram went, as the Lord had told him. And Lot went with him. Abram was 75 years old when he departed from Haran. And Abram took Sarai his wife, and Lot his brother's son, and all the possessions that they had gathered, and the people that they had acquired in Haran, and they set out to go to the land of Canaan. When they came to the land of Canaan, Abram passed through the land to the place at Shechem, to the oak of Morah. At that time, the Canaanites were in the land. Then the Lord appeared to Abram and said, To your offspring I will give this land. So he built there an altar to the Lord who had appeared to him. From there he moved to the hill country on the east of Bethel and pitched his tent, with Bethel on the west and Ai on the east. And there he built an altar to the Lord called upon the name of the Lord. And Abram journeyed on, still going toward the Negev. We won't cover everything in the verses that we read this morning. Uh, next Sunday we'll, we'll, look, uh, we'll, we'll come back to them and look a little bit more closely as well as the rest of chapter 12. But I really just want to kind of introduce the story, especially from these verses in chapter 11, and also try to set the context for the story of Abraham within the entire book of Genesis. Um, 
So our main text, as we see, is found in chapters 11 and 12, but we're also going to look at the beginning of the book, chapters 1 through 11. If you wanted to take the book of Genesis and, and cut it into two parts, chapter 12 would be the part, the start of part 2. Um, chapters 1 through 11 sort of form part 1, and chapters 12 through 50 form this, this second half. That's a helpful breakdown, and, and we'll look at it a little bit more later. Actually, another way to divide up the book involves a repeated word. It's a word that tra that's translated as generations, um, histories, descendants, or, or possibly record. And it's found 12 times throughout the book of Genesis, and it introduces um, the records of individuals and family groups. Uh, these records, they then, they'll introduce a person, and then they explain what happened to this person and his descendants and his, and his family. The first one, if you just turn a few pages back, is in chapter 2, verse 4. It's a little different than some of the other ones. But chapter 2, verse 4, the, the first chapter forms kind of the introduction with creation. And then in chapter 2, verse 4 of Genesis, we read, These are the generations of the heavens and the earth when they were created in the day that the Lord God made the earth and the heavens. So this first section uh, it goes from chapter 2, verse 4, through the end of chapter 4. And it, and it shows us the record of the generations of the heavens and the earth. If you turn to probably a page, maybe two, um, over to chapter 5, you're going to find the next one, chapter 5, verse 1. This is the book of the generations of Adam. So this next record is of Adam, and it goes through all of chapter 5. The beginning of, uh, it goes through chapter 5 and then through uh, chapter 6, verse 8, then chapter 6, verse 9, you're going to see it again. These are the generations of Noah. So Noah is the next person. It happens 12 times. We find Noah. We're going to find uh, Shem, um, Shem, Ham, and Japheth. We're going to find Terah, Ishmael, Isaac, Esau, and then the record of Jacob closes out the book. And so as we look at this, we're looking at the revelation of God in the life of Abraham, and we're following the record of Terah. Terah was his father. This is a description of what happened with Terah and his family. But we find out quickly it's not really about Terah, is it? It's about his son. It's about Abram. This comes on the heels of chapters 1 through 11 of the book of Genesis. And in chapters 1 through 11, we're gonna, we find some themes. These are the big themes that are not only in those chapters, but are throughout the entire book. Okay, The themes of, of, of blessing and cursing. The themes of, of creation and of and of chaos you might say they're themes of good and evil and they permeate all 50 chapters of the book of genesis blessing and creation these are the positive themes of the book the beginning this is a book of beginnings right it's the beginning of of creation it's the beginning of human beings the beginning of sin the beginning of of death and of god's people the israelites um, the world is is seen we see at the beginning chapter one the world is formless it's, it's void, it's, it's chaos. And in the midst of that darkness, God speaks, and God brings creation. He brings blessing. He forms everything that we see. Not only that, but then he forms human beings. Human beings are the peak and the pinnacle of his creation. They're created in God's image. They're given the very breath of God. And then what does God do next? He blesses them. He tells them to be fruitful and to multiply to grow on the earth. So there's this, this blessing that's placed on people. And he, he places them in this blessed garden that they are to care for. Of course, we know 
um, the story of Genesis fairly well. Chapter 3 comes along and the beautiful act of creation, this blessing of Adam and Eve is there, but then suddenly evil and sin enter into the picture. Satan questions the goodness of God, Adam and Eve, by his lies, hook, line, and sinker. And suddenly the darkness and the chaos that has existed in the world begins to seep back in through their disobedience. Sin enters the world. And instead of blessing Adam and Eve, what does God do? He pronounces a curse on them. He sends them out of the garden, out of his presence. He sends them into this world that's full of toil and pain. Pain in childbirth for Eve and just pain in general. It becomes this world where their their son murders their other son. It becomes a world where death reigns. The point of chapter 5, in large part, is to show that every person that was born to Adam died. That because of his sin, death is now reigning in the world. Evil increases. Evil increases in the earth so much that what does God say? He says, I regret that I made it. I'm going to destroy the world with a flood. And for some reason, unbeknownst to us, Noah finds favor in the eyes of the Lord. Noah is the one who preserves creation in the midst of the flood that comes and destroys this curse of God over the whole land that destroys everything and everyone except for Noah and his family. But as faithful as Noah was, the story and the the record of Noah, we see glimpses of, of his failure in the end. Noah plants a vineyard. Noah gets drunk on the wine of his vineyard. He's uncovered in his tent. His son Ham walks in, sees his father uncovered in his tent, mocks his father to his other brothers. It's this strange, terrible picture. But what is the result? The result is that Noah comes and he curses his son Ham. So this this cursing comes again. And, and whereas Noah was to be this this beacon of righteousness, it, it seems that, that the, the darkness continues to grow and evil continues and increases in the earth. It continues and grows through chapters 10 and 11. All the people gather into one city. And you'd think that it may, maybe this will cause everyone to return to worship to God. But what, in fact, happens in the city is that they start to worship themselves. They worship their ingenuity. They worship their strength. They gather in this city that would soon be called Babel. And rather than honoring God, they chose to build a tower as a revelation of their glory as a testament to their ingenuity, as a, a sign of their self-proclaimed greatness. They build this, this large tower, and God sees their pride. And what happens? Another curse. And this time the curse comes in the form of God confusing their languages and spreading them throughout the entire earth. So Genesis 1 and 2 reveal this beautiful picture of, of creation and blessing. But then as sin enters the world in chapter 3, things just slowly seem to be unraveling, don't they? I mean, Adam and Eve are no longer blessed by God. They're cast out of the garden, and the curse of God is is upon them. Their son kills their other son. We see the flood destroy everything. We see the Tower of Babel come, and everyone is spread throughout the entire world. These are glimpses. There's glimpses of God's grace, but it's mostly a picture of the failure of humanity, of of. Humanity falling into murder and and drunkenness and pride and countless other sins. And so the story of these first 11 chapters, it builds builds up to the point that there's a great need in the world. A need for some sort of 
resolution to this cycle that's that's going on, the need for blessing, not cursing, the, the need for order, maybe even for new creation, we could say, to be brought in. We need someone to do what Adam and, and Noah failed to do. Will the blessing of Genesis 1 and 2, will it ever come back into the land is the question that we might ask. We read in Genesis 3.15 of this supposed coming seed who will crush evil, who will crush the serpent. And the question might be that that this hope has been planted in the hearts of people, but, but they don't see it anywhere. Is this ever going to blossom? Is there ever going to be this hope that blessing will return? Or is the, the world going to continue to be this cycle of, of, of death and destruction and cursing? And as those thoughts are in our minds, we land in the middle of chapter 11. I don't know if you read a story or maybe watched a movie and kind of there's, there's a moment where everything starts to come together. You start to say, oh, okay, now I see where this is going. Now I understand the purpose of the author. I was reading this past week. I finished up um, A Tale of Two Cities by Charles Dickens. And there were all these points where he has this, this foreshadowing. Or there were these characters. And I, there was this one character in particular. I had no idea what his purpose was. Actually, there were two guys. I had no idea who they were. And slowly as the story unfolds, you say, oh, so that's why he's hanging around. Because this is, this is his moment to shine. This is when he's going to do something great. I thought he was just some sort of peripheral character. But now, oh, this is important. In the story of, of creation and, and blessing and cursing, this point is the turning point. The, the book of Genesis was given to the Israelites as they're sitting on the edge of the Jordan, as they're waiting to go into the promised land. And I, and I just imagine that as they're hearing these stories recounted, that they're listening to all this, this failure, all this, this cursing, and all this, these things that are happening in these, in these first few chapters. And when they hear this part come along, they, they sit up and they listen. They hear, they hear these words, verse 27 again of chapter 11. Now these are the generations of Terah. Terah fathered Abram, Nahor, and Haran. And Haran fathered Lot. Haran died in the presence of his father Terah in the land of his kindred, in Ur of the Chaldeans. And Abram and Nahor took wives. The name of Abram's wife was Sarai, and the name of Nahor's wife Milcah, the daughter of Haran, the father of Milcah and Iscah. Now Sarai was barren. She had no child. Those, those verses right there, they just they set the stage. It's so beautiful, all of the foreshadowing that's going on in here, because the Israelites know this story. They know exactly what's coming. And so as they see all this chaos and all this cursing, suddenly they say, but Terah's generation is here, and Abram is here. They hear about Lot, and they know the stories of Lot. They know what's going to happen. They know how Abram's going to have to bail him out so many different times. They hear about Sarah. And they kind of they they smile maybe to themselves as they're sitting there listening to the story because it says Sarai was barren she had no child but what do they know they know what's coming they know that she will be blessed and so they they see what's happening they they move to the edge of their seats when they hear about Abram what's going to happen with Abram well, I want to hear this story about how when Abram changes, not from Abram to, but to Abraham, he becomes the father of many nations, the father of their faith. This is the, the turning point. This is where, where light dawns, where, where recreation begins, where blessing is coming. And it's all because of God's sovereign goodness. He just, the, 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 the chaos has been increasing. The cursing has come. But now these are the generations of Terah. 
God is going to do something miraculous through this family. You see here, let's follow the story a little bit. Terah lived in Ur of the Chaldeans. That's where his family had lived. It's where he most likely worshipped the moon god, where he would have sought favor and fertility and fruitful lands from the moon god. It was his home. Ur was where his children were born. These children, Abram, Nahor, and Haran. It's where he had seen these boys grow up. It's where he had seen them um, married uh, to the, the women of that land. It's where he watched his family grow. It's, it's where Haran had given him his grandson, Lot. Ur was his home. This was the place where his family dwelt. It's where his, his joy and all of his connections were in Ur. This is where he lived. But Ur was also a place where he had most likely buried his son. Heron, who had died, something a father never expects to do, is it? To bury your own son, and of his three sons, Heron died before his father. It's also the place where they had all grieved over the fact that Sarai was barren. No matter how they had sought the favor of God, and no matter how often they had been blessed, Sarai never had children. And if we were reading this and we didn't know the rest of the story, then we would probably look at Abram and Sarah and say, well, they seem like a nice couple, but that's not where the line is going to continue because they don't have a son. And Abram's in his 70s at this point. So we would think that the story is going to probably focus on Nahor and probably then on Lot because that's that's where the line's going to go. That's, that's where the son is. But for some reason, the story continues to follow Abram. He's the, the center of the story. You know, Terah seems like any other family head uh, in Ur. His sons and his grandsons and granddaughters were probably uh, like the rest of the people that, that lived in Ur. They were just a normal family in this land. They worshipped the same way that everyone else worshipped. But then in a moment, suddenly everything changed for the record of Terah. And they begin this journey, spiritual and literal, that would change the course of the universe. It's hard to look at it and really follow exactly how everyone everything happened. You look at verse 31. Terah took Abram his son and Lot the son of Haran his grandson and Sarai his daughter-in-law his son Abram's wife and they went forth together from Ur of the Chaldeans to go into the land of Canaan. But when they came to Haran they settled there. The days of Terah were 205 years and Terah died in Haran. It's hard to know was that move to Haran prompted by Abram? Was it prompted by Terah? Why were they going there? Was it because of God's call on Abram's life, or was it for some other reason? But whatever happened, they were supposed to head to Canaan, and they landed in Haran. Haran is on the, the just the far north side of Canaan, of the land of Israel. And they landed there, and they stayed there for some time. We don't know how long, but that's where Terah died. So it's hard to know how everything happened, but here's what we know, that one day, maybe it was while Abram was out, tending to his flock, maybe, maybe a lot like Moses. You remember Moses on the mountain watching over the flocks of his father-in-law and he sees a bush burning but not consumed. Maybe it was something like that. Or maybe it was like, maybe he was, Abram was just lying out underneath the stars, much like his grandson later would do. His grandson Jacob, when he would be lying under the stars and see this staircase going up to heaven and have this vision of God. I'm not sure when it happened or how it happened, but suddenly God spoke to Abram. He says, Abram, I want you to leave your land. 
I want you to leave your kindred. I want you to leave your family. And I want you to go to a land that I'm going to show you. And I will bless you. Amidst all this downward spiral of the fall and of the flood and of the pride of Babel, God was working. God was had his eye on a person that was coming, on a man named Abram. And in a moment when it seemed like hope was lost, God speaks words of blessing on this man. He speaks words of blessing into this family in the middle of Ur of the Chaldeans. It teaches us that God is always the initiator. God is the one who chooses to speak to us. There are none who seek God. I think we need to be careful when we use this word seekers. God is the only seeker that there is. He is seeking out people for himself. And if we seek after God, it's because he is calling to us. God reaches down into Abram's life. He speaks to him. He is the initiator. We can think about the contrast to Babel, where these men and women were raising up a tower to get to heaven. And it failed completely. But Abram was walking around in the middle of earth, and God decided to come to him. It's not about us building up to God, but rather that God descends and speaks to us. You'll notice that absent from the description about Abram is anything that would have caused God to do this. Why did God speak to Abraham? I have no idea. Why was it Abram? We have no idea. Abram was ordinary. In fact, we could say that Abram was less than ordinary. Which just goes to show and to prove that God chooses ordinary, foolish things to shame the wise. He chooses the weak things of the world to shame the strong, as Corinthians tells us. And so God chooses a 70-year-old, God chooses a 70-year-old worshiper of the moon god in the middle of Ur of the Chaldeans who has no children and whose wife is barren as the head of his new nation. Think about that. As I watched the... um, the Olympic athletes file into the stadium on London Friday night. I don't know if you watched that, but I didn't see many 70-year-olds, not even as coaches, right? When you choose people to represent your nation, who are you going to send? You're going to send the strongest and the fittest. You're going to send the best of the best. Nobody wants to send a representative that has no hope of winning, right? Can you imagine if there was a 70-year-old gymnast on the American team? I mean, he's not going to win. That's not who you send. But God doesn't think like us, does he? And we learn all throughout Scripture, it's a constant theme, that we look on the outward appearance. But what does God look on? God looks on the heart. He descends to us. He chooses us specifically on purpose because we have nothing to offer. He chooses us because we are ordinary. And the purpose is so that when he turns the world upside down, through us, he alone gets the glory. Because everyone looks at us and says, that person is nothing special. God must be with him. God must be with her. And so God chooses Abram, a 70-year-old worshiper of the moon God, whose wife is barren, to be the head of his new covenant people. And so God's call is not rooted in who we are. But his call is also not empty. It does call us to something. You see, verse 1 of chapter 12, Now the Lord said to Abram, Go from your country and your kindred and your father's house to the land that I will show you. God says he's calling him to a new land, to a land he had never been in, in order to receive a blessing 
that he could not even imagine coming true. He was supposed to leave the only place that he knew to leave his extended family, his immediate family, his friends, everything that surrounded him, everything that he knew, and to go to a land that God says, I will show you. Now imagine that you're Abraham, or Abram at this point. God calls you to leave everything you know. So think about this for you. He calls you to leave your home. He calls you to leave your family. Some of you might have a glimpse of what this feels like. You've, you've come here, you've immigrated to the United States, and maybe it feels like you've, you've left a lot of things. I don't know if that is akin maybe to what Abraham was feeling in this moment. But imagine that you didn't know where you were going when you left, that someone said, I want you to leave your homeland. And you say, okay, where are we going? And they say, you'll see. And they don't tell you where you're going. That'd be difficult, wouldn't it? One commentator says this. He says, Abram must decide whether to abandon his land in favor of the land Yahweh offers. He must decide whether to abandon what family he still has in favor of the family Yahweh promises against all logic given Sarai's infertility. He must decide whether to set aside his blessing, his inheritance, for the inheritance Yahweh describes. The initiative offers much, but it co its cost is significant. Abram must trust Yahweh to deliver what he has offered in order to give up so much that Abram already has to gain. So God says, leave this land and go to the land that I will show you. There's the promise of a land of his own, but it's a land that Abram's never seen. God says, I'm going to make your name great. I'm going to make you a great nation. It's this promise of descendants, of children and grandchildren. It's a promise to a man in his 70s whose wife had never had a child. He's got to believe. God says, I'm going to bless those who bless you. I'll dishonor those who curse you. Everyone on the earth is going to be blessed through you. But this is to a man that that probably was looked on as cursed by the gods. As someone who, whose brother had died, whose father had died, whose wife was barren. These were all signs that the gods were not on his side. And God says, I'm going to use you as a blessing. God, Abraham has to believe what God is saying. I think one of the lessons that we learn here is that the, the contents of the promise, the contents of the covenant are not as, poor, as important as the person making promises. It doesn't really matter what God says he's going to do. God could say he's going to do anything he wants. The, way, the reason we believe is because we believe who God is. Why does Abram believe what God says? It would seem that even in the little that Abram seems to know about who God is, that he trusts him, that he trusts this God that he, he seems to have, have just Met. It, it doesn't matter what he's promising. It's that this God has spoken to him and said, this is what I'm going to do for you. And Abram believes. He doesn't believe the promises as much as he believes the person who is promising. God's word never fails. In the darkest of times, he speaks, and what he says is true. It's trustworthy. It's what we can believe. And so when God comes and says, Abram, this is what I'm going to do, Abram believes because of who God is. How do we know that Abram believes? We're told very clearly in, in Genesis chapter 15, Abram, Abraham believed God. But it doesn't say that here. What it says is what it says in verse 4. So Abram went as the Lord had told him. How do we know that Abram believed God? Because he obeyed. Because he acted. 
because he did what God told him to do. True belief, true, true faith always manifests itself in obedience. It always shows up in our action. It shows up for Abram in the fact that he packed up everything that he owned and took his family with him to a land that he'd never been to. He believed. We know he believed because he acted. Following God involves action. Faith that is real and legitimate does something. We always see this response in Scripture, don't we? When the disciples believe, what do they do? They drop their nets. They leave everything behind to follow God. What does Jesus tell the rich young ruler to do to show that he truly believes? He says, leave it all behind. Leave all your possessions. Come and follow me. What does Jesus call us to do if we're going to follow him? We're to lay down our lives. We're to let go of any security that we have in anything but him and to walk with him in faith. God calls us to these kinds of steps of faith throughout our Christian life, but he does it particularly in his first call, as he does here with Abraham in his first call. He promises blessing. He promises a future home. promises this city whose builder and maker is God. In the call of the gospel, he promises us forgiveness of sins. He promises us to make us his children. He promises to bless us, to make us a blessing. He promises that in his presence, his fullness of joy at his right hand are pleasures forevermore. He promises all these things. But in order to, to see those things realized in our lives, he also calls us to leave all that we know, to, to leave all that we hold dear, to let go of anything that we find security in, to let go of anything that brings us joy that might be opposed to God. He calls us to leave all of these things for the promises that he's made, for the blessings that he's made, for things that we we might not see fully and completely in the beginning, but even if we can't see them, we believe that they are true, not based on what the promise is, but based on who is making the promise. We believe that God is trustworthy. We believe that he is worthy of our trust. So much more we could say about this story. And so much more we're going to say in the coming weeks. Again, I want to we'll look more fully at this the specifics of this promise in verses one through three, and then Abram's um, obedience in verses four through nine, and we'll see a threat to the promise in verses ten through twenty. We'll see those things next week. But I hope what we see in this is is this beautiful picture of who God is, that God, in the midst of the chaos, in the midst of the curse, in the midst of sin, God reaches in and he chooses. He, he initiates a relationship with a person. He says, I'm going to bless. God is the one who does it. Again, this Tower of Babel that was built to reach up to the heavens was a failure. But when God comes down and speaks to a person, that's when, when, um, when faith is ignited and when God begins to work. And... Another thing that we see is that he, he chooses Abram. Again, we don't see any reason why he chose Abram. There are a thousand reasons not to choose Abram. Let it go, just the fact that he was worshiping another god would seem to us like a reason not to choose him, let alone the fact that he was 70 and had no children. But God reaches down and he chooses him, and so we see that, that God chooses. God, God adopts his children. God ignites faith in those that he loves, not because of anything that's in them, but according to his sovereign good pleasure and for the sake of his name and for his glory alone. 
We see that when he does that, there is a response that is required, a response of faith. Abram is our forefather in the faith. And how do we know that he believed? We believe, we know he believed because he acted true faith, always sees itself expressed in obedience, in action, in a leaving of everything to follow Christ. We said that every story whispers his name, whispers the name of Jesus, whispers the gospel, we could say. I don't think it's a stretch at all to see the gospel very clearly in this passage. In the midst of the darkness and the chaos and the curse of sin that parallels those chapters 3 through 11 of the book, in the midst of that that was that is in the world, that was in the world, God sent Jesus right at the perfect time. We were hopeless to get to him. So he came down. He made his dwelling among us. He became a baby. He lived his life in faith, even more so than Abram did. He left everything to come and to be with us. He is the greater Abram, we could surely say. And as he comes into the midst, as he speaks, as he initiates relationship, he, he makes promises to us. He says, believe, and you will receive forgiveness of sins. You will receive life everlasting. The call is to faith. The call is to leave everything. He calls us to life, but to receive the blessings that he offers, to receive the forgiveness of sins, is to act in faith and to leave any other securities that we have any hope that we might have in, in our good deeds, any hope that we might have in the money that we have, any hope that we think we have in who we are, and to put our hope fully in Christ, to let go of everything that we own, everything that we have, any security that we would have, and to say, my hope is in God alone. I trust Him. And why do we do it? Do we do it because of the greatness of the promises? Or we do it because of the greatness of the one who makes the promises. We do it because if Jesus has laid down his life for us, he has shown us that he is for us. He has shown us his great love. And so we are willing to trust. We are willing to let go of everything because we know that his word is true. So I guess the question this morning, as far as a challenging question, would be are we willing to follow? Have we placed our faith in Christ? First of all, for, for salvation, have we let go of everything else to say, God, you are my only hope? But also, in life, sometimes we pick things back up as security. We pick things back up that we hold on to, that we feel like, this is what I need. This is where my hope is at. Abram left everything, and he went somewhere he didn't even know where he was going. I think God often calls us to say, you know, what, where's your security at? Is it in my word? Is it in what I say? Is it, is it in who I am and my character? That's the only place of any hope that we have. So we need to let go of any other securities that we might have and put our hope in God alone. If we have true faith, we will walk. We will obey. We will do what God says. I pray that this walk through the life of Abram would be a blessing. I hope that this introduction serves us well, not only to just say that God's word is real, it is true, it's inspired, and it's all applicable, but maybe even that this morning we would see how that is true in this short introduction. So I'd encourage you to read through these verses during this week, maybe once or twice, Genesis 11, 27, uh, through the end of chapter 20, and we will look at these verses together and seek to see what God would have to teach us about himself.